Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big questions. Can we save Kant's Transcendental? And is it worth saving? My guest is Dr. Catherine Malibu. She is a professor in the philosophy department at the Center for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University, in the philosophy department at the European Graduate School, and in the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of California, Irvine, a position formerly held by her mentor, Jacques Derrida. We discussed what a synthesis of modern philosophy and neurobiology would look like, and I learned that there may in fact be multiple modes of necessity. So come, have a seat with us, and learn to listen with me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what was your journey into philosophy, into critical theory, um, so that we can get kind of situate this? And eventually, you know, I'd love to also hear what made you think, you know what, I need to write a, a book about Kant um, and how this question popped up for you. Yeah, so uh, my general trajectory is, uh, well, uh, I was a student uh, in philosophy in Paris. And then I wrote my thesis under the supervision of Jacques Derrida, still in Paris, and the thesis was, was on Hegel. Uh, and in this thesis, I developed the concept of plasticity uh, that is present in uh, the phenomenology of spirit, but not really elaborated by Hegel. So I um, decided to elaborate it myself, at least to try. And I did it by showing that plasticity had a temporal meaning. So it was, in fact, a thesis about time in Hegel. And then I got interested in the brain um, when I discovered that plasticity was not only a philosophical concept, but also a neurological concept, and that maybe there was a link between both, between the two. And so I started exploring um, neurobiology and, and the most recent discoveries uh, on the brain. Um, arguing for its plasticity, that is, its capacity to change in good or bad um, senses, creative and destructive at the same time. So I, I did a lot of work on this neural plasticity. Uh, and then uh, uh, I had the feeling that my work uh, was not, could not really be received in Europe, at least in France. Uh, people did not, did not really understand why I was interested in the brain. They thought it was not a real topic for many reasons. So I decided to move and to uh, teach in the UK, where I teach regularly. And then I got this position in the US. So this is, this is how things happened. So now, why this Kant book? It is because... Um, the, I don't know if you know that, but maybe 10 years ago, uh, there was the, the, uh, the emergence of this movement called realism or speculative realism. And the book became very famous by a young French philosopher called Quentin Meillassou. And this book is called After Finitude. And in this book, well, this book is a, clearly an anti-Kantian book in which Meillassou demonstrates that Kant has eluded the issue of the origin of cognition by using uh, the concepts of a priori, 
we would have a priori concepts in our minds, uh, a priori or what he calls Kant transcendental. We would we would come to this world with all equipped with a transcendental set of categories. And Miyasu says this is a this is a disavowal um, of the real origin of knowledge or cognition. Um, well, I will tell you more about that perhaps in the discussion, but what is important is that Miyasu says at some point in the book, we have to dismiss the category of the transcendental. Mm. And I said, no, this is not possible because uh, we will talk about that. But for many reasons, I think that Kant's transcend the transcendental in Kant can be re-elaborated in a new way, etc. So I started discussing uh, this argument by Meyasu, that we should stop um, thinking that uh, we have a priori ca categories in the mind. Yeah, and I get definitely, yeah, I, I read the book, uh, by the way, I want to say, uh, phenomenal book. Uh, <laughs> I, it has been a hot minute since I've read anything like this. It's been 10 years since I was in a master's of philosophy. So uh, it was good. Uh, definitely stretched my brain in, in good ways. Um, and I'll also apologize in advance for uh, Maya Su. I, my French is not there. So if I, if I butcher the, the no, accent. Is perfect, 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 perfectly <laughs> pronounced. <laughs> well, that's just because I'm copying you. Like when I'm reading... <laughs> You know, I, I I knew better than to say you know uh, Mela Souks. You know, uh, when I was no, reading the book, um, I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, so as I'm looking at this, I think for our audience' sake, uh, the two terms I think are probably most important for them to understand: um, what is the transcendental, um, and what is epigenesis? Because I think, obviously, if you don't understand those two terms. The whole, <laughs> you're gonna have a really hard time understanding this entire argument. Um, yes. Uh, so if you could start by just telling, giving a, a brief explanation of what is the transcendental. Um, yeah, so it's great. it is a very tricky question, definitely <laughs> because the transcendental, uh, which is not the transcendent, uh, because transcendence means outside, it means far mm. away from. Transcendental, on the contrary, means internal. Huh? So transcendental, first of all, designates something internal to the mind in Kant. Mm. And what is it? It is uh, the set of categories that we need in order to be able to cognize the world. So mm. what is this set of categories? Uh, these categories are the logical categories implied in all scientific approach to the world. So the categories Kant is talking about are quantity, quality, relation, modality, all implied in judgments, huh? judgments of cognition. So it is, uh, this set of categories is like a logical structure inscribed in the mind. The, what, when I say that it is a tricky question, it is because Kant says, at the same time, this logical structure is not innate. Right. So we have to make this big difference. We have to understand the big difference, and this is why it is tricky, between transcendental, that is a priori given, and innate. Why is it not innate? 
It is not innate because at the same time, and this is the problem, we have to learn them. When we go to school, when we then go to university, we have to learn hmm, these categories. So they are present, so to speak, in the mind. And at the same time, they have to be discovered. Mm -hmm. If they were innate, we wouldn't need to study them. Hmm? So there's a gap between the structure and the empirical uh, discovery or acquisition of these categories. Uh, Meyasu is not convinced at all and says, no, no, no. In reality, what Kant is saying is that they are innate because he's not able to really um, prove their existence. Uh, their existence is, is presupposed. How can he really show, demonstrate that we come to the world with these virtually present categories? Uh, they must be, they must be uh, innate in some way. And if that is true, then Kant is more or less a liar. <laughs> He says it is fabricated. The transcendental is a fabrication. Mm. See, so this is the problem. Epigenesis, and then I will relate the two terms. Epigenesis sure. what, uh, was, in, in Kant's time, a biological theory opposed to pre-formationism. -for pre it was mm. a, a quarrel about the embryo. Was the embryo all formed in the womb? And just, you know, all, all, all form that is present in miniature in the womb and then uh, just developing in size after birth. Or, and this is pre-formationism, formationism, or is the embryo starting with one cell and then two cells? Is, is there a genesis of the embryo in the womb? Uh, is uh, the, the embryo, the fetus, developing out of differentiation? So there's a gradual process of formation. And this is epigenesis. Epigenesis. You, you find this term of genesis. Preformationism is against any form of genesis. It's, it was the, more or less the religious vision of the embryo. Uh, a kind of anti-evolutionist vision. Kant is clearly on the side of epigenesis. This is what he explains in the third critique. But what is very, um, and this was the point of departure of my book, which is extremely interesting, is that when he tries to defend the transcendental, showing that, that yes, it exists and it is not innate, he uses the category of epigenesis in order to demonstrate that the transcendental is, uh, comes from a kind of genesis in the mind. It is not entirely uh, given, as if it was all preformed, but depends on a kind of uh, genetic process, which is extremely uh, surprising, because how can we think of an a priori genesis? If we are dealing with pure categories, how can we imagine that we have this process of one cell adding to another, etc. And yet, Kant uses this metaphor uh, and talks about um, a system of epigenesis of pure reason. So I use this argument, I develop this argument, because it's only a few lines in the first critique. I develop this argument in order to 
uh, answer Mies's critique and affirm that yes, tra the transcendental is not innate. No, the transcendental is not innate because it develops. Yeah? It, it, is, it has uh, a plastic formation. Mm. Yeah. So, and I hope this uh, was clear. No, no. This is I. Uh, this is this is great. Um, so, in terms of the transcendental, I was trying to think of another possible word picture. And yes. um, so, one of the things that becomes important later um, in your book, as, as you kind of draw to the conclusion, is our capacity for self-reflection and the ability to change ourselves. And that capacity is the uh, you you reference us looking in a mirror, right? That life looks in a mirror and is able yes. to address itself. Would yes. is one way to think of the transcendental, and I understand that there's a weakness to this analogy, but for our listeners, it's think of the as the transcendental as the mirror itself. And it's not our self-reflection, because we have to be present in the mirror for that, but that it is the mirror. But at the same time, it's a mirror that 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 we form or that changes over time. That's the epigenetic part. So yes, you're right. So um uh, if we say that, if we just say that, it may look very abstract. And, and, and mm. someone could say, but what are you talking about? Like life looking at itself in the mirror. And I, and I admit that my metaphor uh, might be very abstract. In reality, this makes sense only if we refer to the brain. Uh, so my move in that book, the, the risky move I made, is that we cannot understand the transcendental uh, outside the development of the brain. Mm? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, Kant would have admitted that, that in mm -hmm. fact, um, this epigenetic movement of the transcendental um, mm. is uh, the prefiguration of the brain development. Because as you know, today, scientists talk about an epigenetic development of the brain. The brain develops right. itself gradually, etc. So, in fact, uh, when I said life looks at itself in the mirror, um, means that the brain is able to document or chart its own development. Huh? Right. To you look see? at itself. To look, yes. to look at itself through uh, thinking, through creation, through, through any kind of objects that we create. And, and so... Um trying to determine which way I'd like to go. How about before we get into uh, your conclusions, which I found really fascinating, and I think you mentioned that they are, that you want to do a further development of them, which I'm excited to see. But uh, why don't we talk about the three different readings that you kind of developed throughout the book and what you consider to be wrong readings of Kant, um, you know, that minimal preformationism, uh, Heidegger's own view of time, and so people can understand kind of the state of the discussion and see how you answer that. So, yes, okay, thank you. Um, I think that maybe it, it will sound uh, pretentious, but this is not my... But I, I have to say that I think that nobody has read this epigenesis metaphor in the first critique rightly, in the right way. Hmm? Uh, when Kant says, no, the transcendental is not innate, it... It has its own process of formation. It hasn't be, been underst understood in the right way because you're right, there are three uh, great big types of reading. The first one 
that is supposedly very Kantian, you know, because uh, it has been developed by Kantian official scholars, tends to say, in reality, Kant has to admit a certain preformation of the transcendental. Otherwise, we would not be able to understand how the transcendental can remain the transcendental between, bef, um, without becoming empirical. And epigenesis mm. takes place in time, and so it cannot remain a priori. It has to happen in real life, so to speak. So in order to defend the idea of, a pure, of the purity of the transcendental, that is something that never happens empirically, but remains uh, located in the logical structure of the mind. Uh, Kantian readers, official uh, readers of Kant, have uh, argued that whatever Kant says, there's a minimal preformationism in his reading. And I don't agree with that at all. Because if, we, if you state that, you don't understand the reference to epigenesis in the third critique. You don't understand this famous paragraph 21 of the, of the first critique, uh, in which Kant affirms that there's a system of uh, epigenesis of pure reason. The second type of reading is totally anti-Kantian. Um, comes from uh, thinkers like Peirce, um, essentially, and developed further by um, physicists um, and uh, also biologists. And this reading tends to say, no. I mean, the development of the categories in our mind is entirely evolutionary. Uh, it's the mind constructs itself through the progress of generations. Huh? So uh, the first human being, if such a thing exists, uh, had to construct <laughs> the categories entirely empirically, and then his followers inherited this process and improved it, and so, uh, I mean, all along the generations. So it means that the categories of our mind, I mean, the logical structure of thinking and, and cognizing is entirely uh, a posteriori. Mm -hmm. it, it constructs itself out of inheritance. This is the uh, essential argument of Peirce. Uh, um, out of, uh, um, yes. So, and the, so, and if I can just ask a couple of questions for both of these. One is, uh, one of your critiques, and I think this is uh, a good one and an interesting one um, for the first minimal preformationism, is the way that reason becomes arbitrary. It be, like, and this is where you, we go back to the biological discussion, that, it's, uh, that we're denying evolution and that it's, it's just this arbitrary like divine gifting, which is basically yeah. just pushing the answer of the, the logical categories you're just pushing the genesis further back, right? Exactly. Like, <laughs> and, and you and you evacuate the, the question yes. of the origin. Yeah. So right. maybe they don't say it, it is divine, but yes, you can induce that. Very right. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's like uh, that. You know, if it's not the divine giving it, it's definitely just like gifted from somewhere. That's where you'll see kind of a need or or a neoplatonist reading, exactly. right? Yeah. Right. Um, and then for uh, 
and I thought about this with the the neurobiology, and uh, I remember listening to uh, John Searle talking about the philosophy of mind. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious if this critique works. Uh, he obviously we think that Descartes got a lot wrong, but the the, the Cartesian thought that even if it's just an illusion of consciousness, the illusion does count as consciousness. Um, and you make some reference to this in your in your book, but that's what popped into my head when you're talking about uh, the neurobiological current state of discussing the brain and mind is it just takes the, the uh, consciousness and just says it's an illusion. But even if it is just an illusion, the consciousness is functioning as consciousness. Yes, it is functioning as consciousness. All the, all the issue is to know where, where it comes from. Uh, for, right. for, for, because you're right, it's interesting to introduce consciousness in this debate. More or less, the transcendental uh, is consciousness. Hmm? It's the, the immediacy of, um, of thinking, of being present in the world, etc. The problem is where does it come from? Right. Uh, for, um, well, continental philosophers, mostly, consciousness is immediate. And precisely, it is made possible because of the transcendental, because there's this structural ability of our mind to, to be immediately awakened. Uh, you were asking me, how is your day going? That's the, 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 the miracle. You know, you open your eyes and you're immediately conscious. Consciousness for Descartes is, is defined by its immediacy. Yeah, you, you awaken and you're and and this can be translated into um, uh, well at the level of the let's say evolution, it means that there is no evolution of consciousness. It has always been immediate. Huh? My children will also be aware, aware conscious, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is no history of consciousness. Hmm. This is something immediate. Uh, this is the structure of the mind. On the other side. Oh, biologists and let's say cognitive philosophers affirm that this is an illusion. What, what is an illusion is not consciousness. It is the illusion of its immediacy. That in fact, consciousness, the, the uh, emergence of consciousness um, has uh, requested centuries of evolution. And that even now when I wake up in the morning, in fact, the the immediacy that I immediately feel is the result of many cerebral processes that happen at a very uh, fast, uh, that, ha that happen very quickly, so yeah. quickly that I'm not aware of them, but without them, I wouldn't be aware or conscious. So you see, this is this illusion of immediacy that is at stake in the, in the uh, discussion. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one of my favorite and I think most easily understood critiques of Descartes was by uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico. And mm -hmm. basically he just said, like, Vico was um, especially interested in pedagogy. And one of the things he said was, like, the Cartesian method does not work with kids. <laughs> exactly. You can't build in little, little bits. It's not like... Exactly. It, yeah. Uh, there we, you see already in Vico that consciousness is, a, is an elaboration. It, it cannot be, yes, immediate. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and then, so then we have uh, a third reading. I'm sorry? 
Yes, yes. I forgot about the third reading. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no problem. I, I, I stopped you and I asked. I'm just trying to understand the critiques. Make sure. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Because the way you set it up uh, and the way that you were picking apart the readings, I wasn't sure if I was understanding the reading because when I, <laughs> when I would read it, I'd be like, this doesn't make sense. And then you would get to the end and you say, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, oh, okay. I do understand. <laughs> and oh, so yes. it was very helpful. I didn't. I, didn't, um, I was not... I didn't agree with the second reading either right. because uh, um, because it is a reductive reductionist. I don't know how to say that reading yeah. that doesn't allow for any kind of um, idea of what a structure is. Uh, all structure would have to be uh, constructed over time, and I, and I don't think it's right. It feels like it folds consciousness into too small of a box. Yeah, exactly. Um, it reminds me a lot of how, ep like, no one actually lives like uh, epiphenomenalism is true, right? That that consciousness is just the reaction of our bodies, not the actual creator oh, of movement creator in our bodies. Of, so you're like, exactly. <laughs> no one lives that way. Yeah. No one lives that way. So I, I, I totally agree with you. So I was not satisfied, mm -hmm. um, even if very interested. Yes. And then we have a third reading uh, by Heidegger that is very powerful in Kant and the Problem of Metaphysics, a book that he wrote just after Being in Time, in which he explains that the transcendental, as Kant uh, elaborated it, is in reality the very structure of time, which is very difficult to understand uh, immediately. I mean, what does that mean? Kant precisely uh, is uh, uh, saying that uh, the transcendental, as we just said, is not empirical. So why time? Um, Heidegger, difficult to understand? I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very difficult to understand. And at the same yeah. time, this is a wonderful reading of Kant, extremely yes. vicious and extremely revelatory. I mean, I must say that before reading Heidegger, I never understood the first critique. Mm. I, I was, I was uh, learning it as you learned a multiplication table. And I, I, you know, like a, a series of technical things you have to take for granted, you know? Um, I couldn't, I mean, I say, okay, this book is incomprehensible. Um, the first critique. I will just learn it by heart <laughs> without, you know. And I then, can't tell you how encouraging that is because that's exactly how I felt. And I'm like, oh, I must be stupid. <laughs> no, I mean, how can you do otherwise? I mean, it's very technical. It's very uh, stern. It's very... Uh, and um, I was... Yes, when I, when I read uh, Kant and the Problem of Metaphysics, first of all, I had the same experience that at first sight it was... Uh, incomprehensible. And then um, Heidegger is telling us, no, 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 behind all these technical terms, etc., there's a genuine philosophical question, which is, we need to reground metaphysics. And even if Kant is fighting against metaphysics in all the book, Heidegger says, yes, but behind this fighting, behind this critical rejection of traditional metaphysics, there is a, a genuine gesture of re-elaborating metaphysics. 
uh, and to elaborate it on the basis of finitude, which has never been done before, because metaphysics, as you know, was about uh, eternity, the divine, etc. And Heidegger says, for the first time in the history of philosophy, we have a metaphysics of finitude, metaphysics as finitude. Hence, also, you know, the critical title of Meyasu's book, After Finitude, which means after Heidegger as well. Huh? Mm. Um, so metaphysics of finitude, what does that mean? Um, in fact, Heidegger explains that this transcendental set of categories that Kant is talking about would not make sense for an eternal creature. Finitude is precisely uh, the situation of a being that has to find the categories uh, in his mind, in her mind, without having to um, rec without having to invent them because we don't have the time to do so. So, in a certain sense, um, this a priori set of categories that we have in our mind is a kind of time saver. We are in a hurry because we are finite. <laughs> yeah? This is exactly what, what Heidegger says. And this situation of um, having to cope with a very short uh, lifespan is in fact the true metaphysical question. The, the true metaphysical question is not as usual, as traditional philosophers used to say, let's try to escape our condition and think of the eternal, the infinite, etc. No, let's think of our own condition, which is very limited creatures, very limited subjects, limited in terms of time, in terms of uh, uh, strength, in terms of uh, ambitions, and let's uh, call metaphys metaphysical this situation of a kind of um, poverty. Mm. Mm. What Heidegger also, uh, yes, designates as poverty, like we have nothing. And, and is this, and, and I, I might be getting the term wrong, but he, uh, especially I think before the turning, you mentioned this in your book, being towards death. Yes, exactly. Yes, that we are, that we are conditioned by the fact that we have an end. Totally. And that we have an origin as well, a beginning. Correct. Because for, for Heidegger, death is ahead of me, but also behind me. I don't know where I come from. And this is the transcendental situation. We don't know where our categories come from. Hmm? Uh, which, to answer that they must be preformed in a certain way is to, um, is to, um, is Just not to give answer. up. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an answer that cannot be grounded. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. And we don't know why we, we, we are mortal. There, there, are no, there are no answers to, to these questions. And this is what Heidegger calls time in, in a more, when you have, uh, you have ordinary temporality, like past, present, future. But uh, Heidegger says, no, we have to think of the transcendental as an uh, enlarged notion of time that designates what he calls temporality as opposed to time. Temporality designates this situation of someone who has very little time, who is, uh, you know, um, this essential poverty that 
yes, or you, you're right, the equivalent is being for a death, which is for a Feiliger what he calls temporality. And to go beyond that is to delve into the realm, uh, not of ontology, but of ontotheology. Yes, exactly. Right, that we're, we're, we're basically, like when you talk about the infinite, you don't have access to the infinite. Absolutely. Except through some uh, measure of the divine. And which for Heidegger is a disavowal, or what, right. what he calls a for, um, oblivion. Yeah, when he says uh, uh, the question of being has been forgotten, has been has fallen into oblivion, it means we, we've we've always tried to escape finitude. So uh, all of a sudden, the first critique became for me after I, I understood this book by Heidegger. I think I, at least I, I think I understood it. Uh, the first critique became like a, a crime story. I mean, I could it became a page turner. Because then it became extremely interesting. Mm. Because Heidegger had uh, learned me how to read it by seeing that what Kant was uh, describing was uh, the situation of someone who had very little time and had to do with it. Mm. With an mm. enormous ambition of cognizing the world, uh, enormous ambition and very little time and very little means uh, very little tools, a, a very limited set of uh, means. Um, so the critique, I didn't find it totally satisfactory in, in, after all, when I realized that I, uh, at the same time, uh, Heidegger was not uh, considering the biological situation responding to this ontological situation. For him, all considerations uh, about the brain, about art, what he says, he characterizes them as inauthentic. Uh, metaphysics has to remain pure. Hmm? And all uh, consider, well, yes, biological consideration, yes, but this, this, uh, this finite being that has so little time um, has also a biological body responding, I mean, coinciding with this finitude. Heidegger says, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. And he doesn't say anything about the term epigenesis, which necessarily has a biological meaning as well. Huh? So for me, this reading by Heidegger, which that is so beautiful and fundamental, remains a little bit um, idealist. Uh, and so that... I you know, and this is what you do in your book so well, is you, you carry us through these three readings, and then you come to, uh, it, it, let me see if I can rephrase this so, and see if, uh, if I'm understanding. What you are uh, really attempting to do is to create a synthesis between um, biology and physics, between uh, determinis determinism and freedom uh, through the epigenesis of consciousness. Yes, exactly. And, and that's eventually, like, uh, this is kind of just the exactly. start, but that's, that's the great work that's coming. Not to put any pressure on you, but. <laughs> um, or do you think that work is contained in here? I think you mentioned something about, uh, about how you think this is just the beginning of what you're writing. But I did not write down the page number for that. That's a very bad side of me. <laughs> 
always think when I finish a book that it will yeah. uh, give way to a, a new development. And in fact, yeah, you yeah. know what? After this book, mm. uh, the next one was about anarchism. Oh, okay. <laughs> so last, my, my, yeah. So um, if, I, if I pursue this uh, work, it will be uh, in the form of a confrontation between epigenesis and dialectic. Like coming back to my first love, who was Ooh. Hegel, I, I would love to, to develop so a, a confrontation between epigenesis as a development, as Kant uh, conceives of it, and Hegel dialectics. That function uh, similarly. Yeah, they, I was about to say, they sound very similar. They like sound I kept, very similar. I kept wondering. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if I do something, and I, I, I wish I can do it, uh, it would be this confrontation yeah i think i will start it because i I am due to participate in a hegel congress somewhere next year so maybe i'll give the first little version of that version of that uh well that uh sounds awesome uh can you explain uh kind of how you you think you achieve that synthesis um that answers these these three uh, failed readings of Kant? Um, well, as you, I think, understood, I was interested, I am interested in both readings. First, a Heideggerian one, like finitude, etc., and second, a biological one. I take, because I, I as I said in the beginning, um, I'm very interested in the brain. And um, I don't think that you can do brain science or a critical approach to the brain without affirming that there's something transcendental in the brain. So what I try to do in that book is to reconcile a, a, a purely logical and abstract vision of the transcendental with an empirical one but at the same time escaping both positions and showing that uh, brain development and transcendental epigenesis uh, have, to be, uh, have to be synthesized, huh? have to be, uh, uh, yes, reconciled, thought together, etc. Mm. So I think this is what I... Uh, like, if you want a kind of... Uh, critique of pure neurology, something like that, you know, produce a kind of uh, Kantian approach to neurology by not rejecting neurology, but on the contrary, integrating it into um, what Kant calls critique, you know. Um, yeah, and so for me, I think the light bulb moment, uh, page uh, 173, um, I don't know if there's different versions of this, but this is the version that I have. Uh, you say the epigenetic transformation of necessity and causality, starting from reason itself, mm. reveals that contingency derives less from a possible modification of the laws of physics than from the existence of different levels of necessity or lawfulness in which physical necessity is but one dimension. And so that necessity exists beyond just physical necessity. That's one part of necessity. And so uh, when we talk about Physics um, has a different model, 
and not I wouldn't say a model. It has it has a different set of parameters mm-hmm. uh, than biology does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, all of those contribute to necessity, and this kind of goes back to um, the fact that the laws of physics have given rise to something which can recognize the laws of physics, which kind of gives us the invariable nature of the categories when faced with things like physics, but. Um, when you look at things like the critique of judgment, all of a sudden the categories can change because the cat, the, because in the critique of judgment, you're dealing with categories that are dealing with the, the power to, of self-reflection itself. Exactly. The power of self-reflection itself. And that's why, um, that's why in the third critique, Kant adds, so to speak. Um, a new category to the uh, the ones developed in the first critique, which is purposiveness. Yes, that was not present in the first set of categories. And purposiveness in the third critique becomes a category of the category of causality mm-hmm. and of necessity, uh, both of them. And which means that in Kant himself, uh, from one critique to to the other. There is an epigenetic development because uh, because the purposiveness was not present in the beginning. It means that the categories are able to develop themselves, to evolve. Um, and this, uh, I think, Meyersu doesn't take into account at all because, as you say very rightly for him, Kant would only talk about physical necessity um, and would not allow for the contingency of uh, the laws of nature. Precisely, this is what Kant does in the third critique. So Meyerson's argument is only valid if you if you if you take if you take the first critique only into account. And I also wanted to add something important that we hadn't touched on, which is the the epigenetics as a science. Yes, because uh, uh, we talked about epigenesis, which was, as I said, this uh, biological theory. But uh, since, let's say. Uh, the mid 20th century, that was the development of this science called epigenetics uh, that studies the, uh, uh, how can I say, that? the translation of the DNA into RNA. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, is that the origin of the formation of uh, uh, different physical individuals? I mean, our epigenetic character is. Uh, the way we look, and so to speak, like the individualization of the DNA. Um, and uh, the brain, as we said also, uh, is said to have an epigenetic development, meaning that it depends, the evolution of the brain depends a lot on every kind of influences from the outside, education. So, so the brain is at the same time a structure and something that evolves and differentiates itself through the different influences, just like our genetic development also uh, is exposed to the influences of education, of uh, uh, environment, of experience, etc. I think this is important. And, and Meyasu doesn't at all account for that. For him, necessity is only physical. Uh, yes, it, it uh, concerns only physical laws, never, um, yes, biological laws that are so flexible, so plastic. Because purpose is a function of life, right? Like uh, 
an asteroid hurtling through space doesn't have a purpose per se. Yes. Uh, unless it is given by some form of consciousness, even animal consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and what we see is there are some categories that seem to stay the same because they're related to physics, but the categories related to life can appear, re, uh, disappear, reappear, and change in course because they are linked to the, uh, the evolution of consciousness itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, consciousness itself is a living being. But this does not mean that we have to uh, adopt Peirce's point of view and saying that uh, the construction of consciousness is entirely a posteriori. I think we need to, as I said, to, to find a middle point between the pure abstraction of the transcendental and its uh, biological being. Yes, and I think that's where... Uh... I, I feel like, and maybe, you know, I, I, I tend to regress to mental pictures, but what I feel like people like Pierce, um, Mayasu, what they're saying is they're giving this view of consciousness without a mirror, this idea that consciousness does not act upon itself. And you cannot leave out that dimension because that dimension is incredibly powerful. And it is the difference. Uh, it, it is strange that when you start to understand this process, you start to understand the difference, not the difference, but the synthesis of determinism and freedom. Exactly. And you know, this, is, this reflection um, is precisely what Kant calls critique. Uh, it's the critical dimension of the mind. So one thing is the set of categories um, necessary to understand the world, etc. Another is the way in which... Um, the mind reflects on itself, reflects on its own power, uh, on its own categories, etc. And this mirroring is what Kant calls critique. And this critical dimension is negated by philosophers like Peirce or, um, how do you say, Pierce or Peirce? <laughs> I, you know what? I don't actually know. I've I always think Peirce. Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And um, yes, it is this critical dimension that philosophers like Peirce or Pierce uh, negate by saying, no, 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 this doesn't exist. I mean, reflexivity is an illusion, or it, it, it is made po only possible because of this evolutionary structure of the mind, but it is not a structure. Uh, and I think that it is very uh, dangerous to say that, because for me, freedom, as you say, we are determined, this is true, but we are also free. And freedom means, first of all, for me, the capacity to reflect on who we are. I mean, with, without this reflexive dimension, then uh, we are only mechanisms, pure mechanisms. And I don't think that's true. And because we can reflect, we can change. And we right? can change. And that's, and that's the, the, that fundamental nature. Um, I, I did, and if I am just totally off base here, feel free to just say no, it doesn't work. Um, mm. I I did uh, some work in Recor ten years ago, so I might just completely butcher this. But uh, if you, I don't know if you've read Time and Narrative, um, but when he talks about the three types of mimesis, prefiguration, mm. uh, configuration, and then refiguration, uh, which is interesting, you know, that the, the ideas of time pop up as we're talking here. Um, but is that, yeah, and maybe this is, is, this is what you want to do next with Hegel, because it reminds me a lot of this process of epigenesis, 
this idea of we have our pre-understanding of the world, we have our categories, and then we are, deal with the actual story we're told. Of course, this is from a narrative standpoint, which I understand consciousness is more than narrative, but that's a major part of it. And then you have, once you have, a, you have dealt with the story as a whole, you, know, you have your, your pre-understanding of the story, then you have your understanding of the story, and then you take that and you read that back out into the world. Is there, um, yes. is that very similar? Is that like, I, I obviously that's from a narrative standpoint, but is that a good way of thinking about how epigenesis happens? So, thank you so much for that because it's um, really a coincidence or, um, because I'm teaching Recur at the moment, so, oh. <laughs> but not, uh, not time and narrative, even if we talk a lot about it, but oneself as another. Mm. That also requires a lot of um, narrative categories. And he, in this book, Ricoeur very often refers to time and narrative. Um, so yes, it, it is very interesting. And as I say in the book, in the Kant book, uh, Ricoeur also has a strong concept of epigenesis. Uh, right. Maybe we can start with this. Epigenesis for Ricoeur designates the present moment, that is the synapse, as it says, between a very long, I mean, an archaic past, mm. uh, so, so far away that we can, cannot even date it, and teleology that is a very distant future. And Ricoeur says, critique, the critical uh, instance, is to articulate both in this present moment that he calls the epigenetic, epigenetic moment uh, in the middle of, of time. And this is where the narrative starts. Um, uh, this, the power of, uh, as you say, of figuration, configuration, the, the first mimesis, is the capacity to invent a story that is to reconcile necessity and contingency uh, by creating, yes, a narrative that situates itself between, in between uh, this very remote origin and this very remote future. Yeah? A narrative is what um, holds together the absence of origin, because it's too far away, and the uncertainty of the future. So it perfectly resonates with what Heidegger's is Heidegger is saying, uh, but what it adds is that for Ricoeur, it can only take the form of a narrative. It cannot be, and uh, he's very adamant on that, it cannot be a book like uh, Being in Time. Uh, philosophy is not able to answer the problem of necessity and contingency. Uh, building narratives is the only way to deal with it. So philosophy has to encompass narrativity in, in some sort of way. Because it, he, Ricoeur doesn't, th doesn't agree with Heidegger that only philosophy can address the problem uh, that we were uh, talking about a moment ago, like this being that has so little time, etc. Because Ricoeur says uh, the only way of addressing it is to, is to create a narrative, to, is to configure and reconfigure finitude. Hmm. Uh can you explain, uh, and I, I think I, I understand, but uh, I, I love the title, Before Tomorrow. Uh, thank you for that answer, by the way. Um, 
I, I'll be honest. I'll probably go back and watch and watch and rewatch your your explanation there. Um, when you say "Before Tomorrow," what is that title in reference to? It's a reference to uh, the a priori nature of the transcendental. Kant says it is given uh, before all experience, so this is before. And tomorrow is the after, which would be the Percy's approach to uh, the construction of consciousness. Everything happens after, a posteriori. So before tomorrow is a translation of a priori, a posteriori. Hmm? Uh, and epigenesis would be, as Ricoeur says, the synapse between both. Hmm? Yeah, I would, this is what I would answer, if that makes sense. Yes, and, and uh, I think you also, and I, I could be wrong here, uh, but you also mentioned a biological yeah. uh, wager that uh, neurobiology is going to go, uh, that you think that as the research continues, it's going to go in a more epigenetic path. Yes, for sure. Yes. Even if, you know, um, the dialogue that I was mentioning a moment ago between preformationism and uh, epigenetism is reinstated instated today by the dialogue between uh, scientists who maintain that everything is genetic, that is in a way preformed, and everything is epigenetic, so in a way uh, historical or developmental. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a strong quarrel at the moment in biology. Is everything genetic, like intelligence, for example? Uh, Or is the mind and the brain and the body developing through time and uh, remaining open to influences, etc. So, you know, the debate is still on very much, very much. <laughs> so, there, and it, so it had that feeling at the end of the book that you were wagering that epigenesis will come out on top. <laughs> I also worked on intelligence uh, because I was so interested in uh, artificial intelligence. And I read so many books that still affirm uh, today, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that intelligence is innate and entirely genet- genetic. Yeah. So it's also a political question. You know, it's also a political issue. Hmm. Uh, behind all that, there's a political issue. Like, are some people more talented, uh, more, mm, yes, more genetically uh, superior to others? You know, uh, so polit- perhaps my conclusion is more political than scientific. But when I argue that epigenetics will win, it's also a, a matter of saying that uh, no one is superior, you know, that there's no mm, innate, uh, yes. Uh, innate superiority. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, as we, uh, I want to be conscious of your time. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, what are yes. some final words that you would leave to our listeners, both for the application of this and uh, maybe a call to action for them? First of all, um, I would like to say that very difficult books, undoubt- undoubtedly extremely difficult, like the first critique by Kant, can be, while read in a certain way, perfectly accessible and containing so many uh, um, urgent questions. Mm. So I would, it would be a, an invitation to 
uh, to philosophy. I mean, to stop thinking that philosophy is out of reach, you know, and reserved to, to, to a few of us. So that, that would be my first point. It, it needs work. It needs, of course, it needs a discipline. It's, but every, like everything else, you know, you cannot play the piano without uh, exercising. It's the same thing for philosophy. So yes, do philosophy, please. Um, that would be my first point. The mm. second point is remain open to what happens in the scientific realm. Like uh, biology is, uh, has known a constantly revolutionary um, transformation since I would say, yes, the, the second half of the 20th century with the discovery of epigenetics, etc. This also, uh, remain open uh, to all um, scientific revolutions happening uh, in your time. I think this is also very interesting, very important. There are many reviews, many journals, very, many uh, books that can help. Because I think that people most of the time remain too... Uh, attached to old visions, for example, of genetics. They don't know that the human genome has been sequenced in 2003 and that we found that, in fact, a very uh, uh, small portion of our genome was coding. And uh, and that's it, you know, like remain open. (laughs) Remain remain epigenetically open. (laughs) So besides your own, uh, your own book, uh, which people should read, um, what are uh, some other resources people could read um, to become acquainted with this issue? Uh, obviously, you have the critique of pure reason, you have Heidegger, you have your own book. What would you recommend? Mm. On count, you, you mean? Uh, to just with the with the issue that you're dealing with here, oh, okay. you know, even because there's a biological component to it too. So, is there a good introduction oh, to the well, biological on, side? On biology, um, uh, I think the the work by Edelman on consciousness, the work of uh, but he's French, Jean-Pierre Changeux. I don't know if neuronal man. I don't know if he's well known in the U.S., but I used it quite, him quite a lot yes. um, with his theory of. Um, uh, synaptic selection uh, yes. of brain. I think this is very interesting. Everything that revolves around uh, the epigenetic development of the brain. There are many, many books now available. Um, I also um, enjoy, I didn't quote him in the book, but I think he's very important, of course, is Dawkins. Uh, the selfish gene, uh, the extended phenotype. I think this is my favorite, the extended phenotype on epigenetic development. Uh, you know the difference between genotype, phenotype. It's a very interesting book. Terence Deacon as well. You have Terence Deacon in the U.S. who is very interesting. Um, a woman biologist, uh, Lynn Margulis. Uh, she works on symbiosis, uh, the development of, uh, uh, you know, how we have uh, um, the microbiome and how our immune system has to deal with internal hosts like fungi, etc. It's very related to my book, 
Uh, I cannot mm. explain that now, but it 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 all you know. So yes, yeah. I would say I would say many uh, uh, many recent books in um, in cell biology. Yes, and then from from the conscience standpoint, uh, maybe something would make it more accessible to people, so they don't have to dive right into oh, you know yes. Kant and the problem um, of metaphysics. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, it, it, it is true. It is very difficult. Um, I would say that you know the books by Deleuze are great. Gilles Deleuze, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, his book on Kant's practical philosophy is very good. Uh, I don't know because it, I'm sorry, I have French references, but no I'm worries. Su- I'm sure that in the U.S. you have also um, book of vulgarization of Kant that might be. I, I think the uh, the editors of Kant in the Cambridge. Um, edition paul geyer is is very is very is very good yeah Uh yeah i I put you on the spot so that's entirely my bad so don't feel (laughs) uh don't feel any responsibility there the uh so thank you Uh, and i think that's a great place for thank you thank you for your questions it was a very interesting discussion i I was wondering in the beginning i said oh my god how will it be um because (laughs) your your email came out of the blue and thank you so much because this is great I'm I think glad you're you enjoyed doing a great it. job. It's very, very good. Very nice. Thank you. And it, it's a real pleasure to have you on. So I uh, just want to say thank you. And uh, uh, to our listeners, uh, feel free to, uh, we'll have the links down below to some of these books and to dig deeper into Dr. Malibu's work. Thank you so much, BJ. 